began this study back in February. It's been a long time. Actually, we started Matthew even before that when we did a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we began in, in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in February, right around mid-February, where we began a series entitled, Christ Can Transcend Whatever Need You May Have, and He Can Transform Your Life. Whatever need you may have, whatever obstacle, whatever barrier, whatever you need to be overcome, Christ can transcend that need, and he can, through the power of Christ, you can be transformed into the likeness and the image of Jesus, and he can transform your life. We've been studying that now for some Sundays, and we're going to come to the close in this series today in Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 32. Now, if you take a look at the screen, the title is, I can be free through the power of Christ. I can be free. And if you think about for the last several weeks, the the studies that we have had about different people who've encountered Christ, each and every one of them had been set free from something. We began when Jesus in Matthew 8 came down from the mount in speaking the Sermon on the Mount. He was on his way to Capernaum and he encountered on that dusty road toward Capernaum a man who had leprosy and Jesus set him free. He said, Jesus, if you will, I believe you can set me free. And he said, I will, and he set him free. And the leper walked away free from his leprosy. When Jesus entered in the city of Capernaum, later on in Matthew 8, there was a centurion who came to him and requested that he heal a servant that he dearly loved. And Jesus was willing to go, but he said, no, 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 I am unworthy for you to come into my house and sit under my roof. If you will just say a word, I believe that that word alone will heal my servant and set them free. And Jesus turns to the crowd and said, such face of this I have never seen in all of Israel. He said, go, let it be done. And he said the word. And as the man turned, Jesus set the servant free. We learn in Mark's account that when he came into the city of Capernaum following that encounter with the centurion. He's in the midst of his sermon in the synagogue on the Sabbath preaching when he is interrupted by a man who is demon-possessed, and Jesus set him free of his demon possession. Word got out after the service that day, if you can imagine. As Jesus is observing the Sabbath, he goes to what we know to be Simon Peter's home to observe the Sabbath, and as the Sabbath is over, it's concluded, the whole townspeople, a large section of the community of Capernaum, come to where Jesus is in Simon Peter's home. There are many who are oppressed by demons, and there are some who have various diseases, and Jesus speaks just a word, and they are forever set free. Well, following that encounter, the mob began to sort of congregate there at Simon Peter's home. And so he decided he would get in a boat and, you know, the study of the storm as we talked about it. And they finally reached the eastern seashore of Galilee. And as soon as they step off the boat and onto the shore, to their surprise, they are met by two demon-possessed men. And they put up a little bit of resistance, but Jesus commands the demons to leave those two men. He sets them out into some pigs. Those pigs then are drowned, and those men walk away forever set free by the power of Christ. Jesus set those two men free. They get in the boat, and they go back to Capernaum, and we find them in Matthew chapter 9. And again, they're at Simon Peter's home, and some men, four men, try to bring their friend to Jesus. They can't get through the front gate or the door because the crowds are too large, so they lower their friend through the roof. And Jesus sets their friend free from his sin, and he tells him to rise and to walk. And that man walks away from that encounter with Jesus completely and forever set free. From that encounter, we learn that Jesus then, walking through the streets of Capernaum, finds Matthew while he is sitting at his tax-collecting booth, not only collecting taxes for the Roman government, but also 
pocketing himself with excess beyond that, making himself wealthy, spending his life in the pursuit of power through possessions. When Jesus invades his life and sets him free from his enslavement to sin. And Jesus, in just a few simple words, says, follow me. And we learned in that passage where Matthew, under the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit of God, stood up and walked away from that lifestyle. And Jesus, from that moment, transcended his sin and forever set him free. As Jesus is walking in the streets of Capernaum, a father comes, and he's concerned about his daughter who is close to death. And he asked Jesus to come and to lay hands on his daughter and set her free. En route to that, a lady who believed that if she could just touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, she would be set free of 12 years of hemorrhaging. And as she reaches to the crowd and touches the hem of his garment, she is forever set free. And Jesus turns to her and says, my sister, the reason why you're set free is because of your faith in me. Now go and live free of your hemorrhaging. And that woman walked away completely set free. After that encounter, they finally make it to the father's home. And on the way, they discovered that the, the, the young lady, the 12-year-old girl, had in fact died en route. And Jesus walked into that room and he places his hand on her and that little 12-year-old girl that was dead comes to life again. And Jesus, through his touch, forever raises her from the dead and sets her free. And today we're going to learn about a, a man who comes to Jesus after Jesus has just in, encountered two men who, who, who desperately need Christ they are blind. We studied them last week. And these two blind men have come to Christ and they put their faith and trusted him as the Advent Messiah, as the, the, the Messiah who has come. And based upon their faith, not only does he save them, but he heals them of their blindness and they leave that encounter with Jesus totally and completely set free, not only from their sin, but they had received their sight. And it's today, after that encounter, where this man is brought to Jesus, who is demon-possessed, and this man, through this encounter, is going to be set free. So the question I have for you this morning as we begin this study, in Matthew chapter 9, beginning verse 32, have you been set free? Have you been set free? Have you been set free, free through an encounter with an intimate personal relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you been set free? Chances are there are some of us in this room who have not yet been set free and we're in bondage to the depravity of our heart and the damnation of our soul. And we, if we don't encounter faith in Jesus in a personal way, will never know the freedom that Christ came as the Advent Messiah to set us free. There are some of us who have encountered Christ as personal Savior and Lord, and we've been set free from the condemnation and the consequences of sin in the sense that we now have the promise of eternal life and an abundant life in this life. 
And yet we, for whatever reason, have allowed the depravity of our soul to once again to be oppressed. You see, once we come to faith in Christ, we cannot be possessed by the enemy, but we can be oppressed by the enemy. And we can choose to allow ourselves once again to be enslaved by the enemy, Satan, and by sin if we allow Satan and sin to enslave us and to rob us of the freedom that we have been given through faith in in Christ. Jesus said that he was the son, and if the son said, you free, you shall be free indeed. Because of faith and trust in Jesus, we have been set free, according to Romans 6, where God, through the apostle Paul, said, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. He later on says that through faith in Christ, we have been set free from a life of being enslaved to sin. And those of us as Christ followers should not allow ourselves to be enslaved once again by the power of sin because of the depravity of our souls and yielding that freedom that we've already been given through faith in Christ to a life of addiction or a life of slavery or a life of bondage. So have you been set free? And are you still free? But let's take a look at the passage in Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 32, and let's quickly look at the text. For here we see that Jesus is on a mission. This is the advent of the Messiah. This is the arrival of the Messiah, and the Messiah has arrived, and he is on a mission. It is a one-time, lifetime mission. There is not going to be another Messiah. There has not been one before, and there will not be another one after him. He is the advent Messiah who has come, and he is setting people free. We learn in Luke 10 where Jesus describes himself pretty much under the category of someone who has entered into the strong man's house to set captives free. The strong man is an allusion to Satan. And Jesus has come as the Advent Messiah to invade the territory that was occupied and possessed by the enemy to basically set those who are captives free. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says the wage of sin is death. And so because of the consequence of sin, we in in essence are enslaved to a life of sin and doomed to a life of eternal damnation. But Jesus came as the Advent Messiah to set us free. So in this mission of setting people free, I want us to take a look at the activity of Christ. And in this passage, we discover in his activity, first of all, he releases divine power. In the activity of Christ, we discover the release of divine power. For Jesus went around releasing the divine power through the divine authority that was given to him because he was the son of God from God himself. Notice in verse 32, it says, as they were going away, behold, as they were going away, behold, here we see a movement that takes place toward the release of the divine power that can only be found through Jesus Christ. There's a movement toward him. There's a movement in the passage where now the writer is saying, I want to move from that encounter with the two blind men. I want to move your attention now to this encounter of the single man. So there's a, a, there's a, a writing movement where he wants to shift our attention and draw our attention to what is about to take place. But there's also a physical movement in the context here in which we find that these two blind men who have been saved and who now have received their sight are leaving the, this, this location where they have encountered Jesus. They are leaving 
And now this man enters into the scene, into the very place where these two blind men encountered Christ. Now, if you recall, they were in the home of either Matthew or uh, Simon Peter. We don't know which home, but he was in a home, remember, to avoid the mob and the crowd. And as he entered into the home, the two blind men follow him in there, and they receive salvation, and they receive sight. Now these two men are leaving, and as they are leaving the residence, as they are leaving the home, as they are leaving this encounter with Jesus, we see now this man and his companions are entering into the scene, into the home, into the room, into the presence of Christ. Now, let me help describe this to you. I think every one of us has been to the doctor at least once in our lifetime. Some of you as recently as maybe this week. I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm not a fan of the doctor. They find things. So I try to avoid going to one as much as possible. And so let's say you're sitting in the reception room. You have signed that little thing indicating that you're present. You're waiting for your appointment to start, and you're sitting in the waiting room, and there is someone else already in that little room with the physician. And you're not going to go into that room and leave the waiting room until they are finished. And when they are finished seeing the physician, they leave, they call your name, and then you go into that little room and wait for about 45 more minutes after you get there, right? Maybe longer. And take your cell phone if you have one. It's a great way to spend some time. But anyway, that's what's happening here. Christ is the great physician, and these two blind men who have received salvation in sight are with the great physician. And it isn't until they leave the great physician in the waiting room, now they leave, that this man with his friends now enter into that little room where the great physician now is going to address their, well, his need and their need, their need to see their friends saved and cured. And so this is the movement toward Jesus. It's interesting that I find that in all of these passages that we've studied, that if there isn't some sort of movement toward the great physician, there is no cure. There is no cure. We have to move toward him. The blind man moved toward him. The leper moved toward him. The centurion moved toward him. There's a, there's a draw. There's a natural pull. There's a movement that must take place toward the great physician in order for us then to receive what the great physician wants to give us, and that's freedom. So the movement has taken place. Now let's take a look at the man in the text. Notice that the man is described as a man who is demon-oppressed, demon and he's mute. He's demon-oppressed, and he's mute. Now, the demon oppression in this passage really means demon possession. There is no Greek word to describe possession in the Greek vocabulary, so it's really kind of an unusual word. But we see this word oppressed, meaning that this man is controlled. This man, this man is influenced by, this man is being dominated by a demon, a singular demon. There is a demon that has, that has sought residency and taken up residency in this man's body, in his soul, is holding him hostage, and the consequence of him being in bondage to this demon is that he is mute. This word mute means either deaf or unable to speak. Many scholars believe that he was not only deaf, but he also could not speak. Some believe that he just couldn't speak. 
I'm not really sure which it is. I don't think it really matters. But here he is mute, maybe unable to hear and maybe unable to speak. And the reason he is able to do so, unable to do so is because he is possessed by a demon. I think some of us have long forgotten the reality of the condition of a, of a man's heart without Christ in that someone who has yet to know Christ can be, even today, possessed by a demon or demons. Now, not all evil activity is demonically, you know, Something that happened. I mean, you can't blame the devil on everything. Okay, that'd be easy to do, right? The devil made me do it. The devil did that. The devil, you know, there's depravity, there's self, there's sin, there's self-centeredness. But, but here we see that this man is demon-possessed. And chances are in a group this size that there's some of us who may know people, unbeknownst to us, who may be demon-possessed. And this man is demon-possessed. Now, a believer cannot be demon-possessed. A believer can be demon oppressed, but not possessed. Oppressed meaning like when Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he was being oppressed. He was being pushed down. He was being tempted by Satan and by demonic activity. And believers can be like Jesus being oppressed. We can be pressed down. We can feel the, the weight and the burden of demonic attack, but we cannot be possessed because we are already possessed by the Holy Spirit because the moment we place our faith and trust in Christ, he, through the Holy Spirit, built a permanent residence in our hearts, and now we are occupied with the Holy Spirit himself. So we cannot be possessed, but we can be oppressed. So if you're a believer and you're feeling the weight of demonic activity, don't look in the mirror and say, am I demon-possessed? You're not. You can be demon-oppressed. And so we have the condition of this man. But his need, if you notice, his need is what? It's not so that he can speak. The man's need is a spiritual need, which is the need that every human being has. People don't need more money. They don't need a better job. They don't need more of this. They need spiritual healing. They need a personal, intimate relationship with Christ, which is what makes all the difference. This man, obviously, it would have been helpful if he could speak, but we know what happens to demonic people who are oppressed or possessed by demons who speak. Remember when the two guys encountered Jesus when he got off of the boat out of the sea of the storm? Remember we talked about that? And they talk like that! And they were screaming at the top of their lungs. So when demons speak, it's it's, it's a scream. It's a screech. It's, it's horrific. So it, be thankful. His, prob, his family's probably thankful that even though he's demon-possessed, he can't speak because they screech and they scream. They don't just speak normal, so to speak. And so we have this man in his condition, which is a spiritual condition. Now let's take a look at the text. You notice not only was he mute, but did you notice a little phrase was brought to him? Don't overlook that. There are some missionaries in this text. There are some ministers that God is using to bring this demon-possessed man to Jesus. There is someone who is bringing him to Jesus. They brought him to Christ. They. Who is they? We don't know who that proverbial they might be. Friends, family members, co-workers, I don't know, but they brought him to Jesus. What we do know, because they brought him to Jesus, is they cared about his condition. They genuinely cared about the man. That's why they brought him to Christ. And I think one of the main reasons why we're not bringing people to Christ is, quite frankly, because we just don't really care. We don't care. 
And because we don't care, because we don't have a compassion, because we don't have a passion for people who don't know Christ and who are condemned to an eternal condition because of their sin, to a, a lifeless existence and a, a, a lifeless existence later on, we, we, just, we just, we don't really care. These people cared enough about bringing their friend to Christ. And I wonder how many friends you have that are awaiting you to bring them to Christ, but you're not bringing them to Christ because you don't really care. Well, maybe you care, but do you care enough? If their house was on fire at three o'clock this morning and they were asleep in that house and you woke up to to the sound of the flames, would you go over there and beat down the door and rescue their lives? Or would you sit there and watch from your window and watch them burn alive? That's a kind of a, an eccentric question, isn't it? Who would do that, you would ask? You might even risk your own life to save their lives. And yet, dying without Christ is a worse fate than dying in a fire in the middle of the morning when you're asleep. So where is our compassion? Why don't we care? Care enough to invest our time, our talent, and our treasures to making sure that everyone in Wichita and Kansas and the world doesn't, doesn't just be forgotten, but that we would do everything humanly possible to be vessels and instruments and tools of God to bring people to Christ. They care. Not only do they care, I think they were courageous. I mean, it, it takes courage to bring a demon-possessed man to Christ, The idea is that they brought him to Christ seems to suggest to me that he didn't go willingly. There was a struggle. I mean, we we learn that demons put up struggle because when Jesus encountered the two demoniacs who were filled with many demons, there was a struggle just with Jesus. Here we have some natural people just like you and me, some human beings in the flesh, not Jesus, but just some people who grab him and they bring him to Christ. It was a courageous thing because they were touching, grabbing, and forcing a demoniac to come into the presence of Jesus, and there was a struggle. And you never know what may happen when you're struggling with a demon-possessed person. You're struggling with Satan himself. And yet I think one of the main reasons why many of us are not concerned about those without Christ is because we lack courage. We lack courage. Because the reality is if we associate with them or connect with them on a personal, intimate level, we're getting a little bit too close to the enemy and we just don't really want to risk it, do we? It takes courage to confront the world and the depravity and the satanic activity in the world that we live and care enough to reach out, even at our own expense, whatever it may be, so that others might not only hear but know and receive Christ and enjoy the freedom that we have. Well, I also find that only they care and not only were they courageous, but they were confident. They had a conviction. Notice they brought the man to who? To Jesus. They believed. They believed. Now, they weren't one of the 12, but they believed that they get their friend to Jesus, he would make all the difference. You know, there's some of us who have given up on some of our friends because we just, we just quite frankly, we've written them off and we just don't think there's no way in the world that, that God could ever transcend their need and transform their life. But there are no hopeless causes. 
Because if a, a man who is possessed by the devil, who encounters Jesus, can be transformed by the power of Christ, there is no one who cannot be transformed. I mean, if you are honest and you look in the mirror and you realize and recognize your own depravity and realize that you're a walking miracle yourself, yet it were not for the grace of God, you too would be lost, and that God transcended your need, your sin, and transformed your life. If he can transform your life and transcend your need and, and set you free, he can set anyone free. And so we see here these wonderful missionaries or these ministers who, who are the vessels, the instruments, the tools that God uses to bring this man to Jesus. And notice in the text now we see the moment in which the divine power is released in verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Not quite, I, I, I can't, can't help but just tell you my frustration with this text this week because Matthew is short and to the point. He's quick. He doesn't give me a a lot of information to go on. Doesn't give us information today. He just goes right straight to it. Doesn't say anything that happened in the exchange or in the encounter. There's no conversation between the guys or to the, the man who's demon-possessed. There's no words that he speaks. There's nothing here except, boom, he did it. That's it. That's all we have to go on. This is the moment in which this man's life is forever going to be changed. And we see that, that in the penmanship of Matthew and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he simply says, Jesus cast out the demon. That's all we have. Jesus cast out the demon. He cast him out. In other words, he took authority and he took control. He used his influence and his power was released and he expelled the demon that occupied the man's body and soul and he cast it out. And it was no longer present. And notice what happens. The mute man spoke. That reflects and reveals this incredible change. The release of divine power changed this man's spiritual condition and changed his physical condition. The spiritual affected the physical. And there was an instantaneous change. There was a transformation that was audible and visible. And here we see in this text that there are two powers in operation then, and I dare to contend with us today to consider those same two powers are still in contention today. The power of Christ and the power of the devil. Now this, this strife, this contrast, this contentious relationship began according to Isaiah 14 in heaven where Lucifer became Satan. He decided that he would overthrow God from his throne. He wanted the glory and he lost the battle. What, what an idiot to think that a creator can be overcome by a creation. Lucifer was a created being and he thought himself to be greater and mightier than God. And he tried to seize the throne. And I, for some unknown reason, because he had a silver tongue, he was able to convince a third of the angels to follow his leadership, and he lost, and he was expelled from heaven, somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3. Somewhere in between that, that happened. And he was cast down to the earth. We find Lucifer, Satan, again in the form of a servant in Genesis 3 where he approaches Adam and Eve in the garden and he tempts them to disobey God. 
Fast forward to Matthew chapter 4, where we see early on in the New Testament, Jesus and Satan battling it out 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, being oppressed by Satan. Jesus is victorious again over Satan. And now we find that Jesus, who is the Advent Messiah, the, 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 the promised Messiah, invading now the home, the, the stronghold of the strong man, releasing captives and setting them free. That's the mission of Jesus. He came to set people free. And he's still setting people free today. How does he do it? By releasing divine power. The activity of Christ, we've discovered not only the release of divine power, we've discovered the recognition of divine power. The recognition of divine power. Look at the text in the second part of verse 33. And the crowds marveled. The crowds are shocked. They're stunned. They're marveled. They're in awe. They're, wow. Now, if you're a student of the Bible and you have several commentaries, you'll learn that many of them want to say and suggest at this point that they are marveling over all of the things that we read in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9. All of the wonderful things that I have just mentioned, and that's, that's true. But don't overlook the fact that they somehow marveled over what just happened to this man who was demon-possessed. And so if they are marveling over this man who is demon-possessed, and if, if, if Jesus cast this demon out in private, in the residence of either Simon, Peter, or Matthew, if it happened then in a private place, not out in the city streets for the crowd that was always following him to see, to witness, and to notice, how did they know that this man who was demon-possessed has now been set free? Do you ask yourself those questions when you read the Bible? Inquiring minds want to know. That's how I approach Scripture. I, I, I approach with a lot of questions. I don't know how they know. But we do see in the text, how do they know? Notice the text. And the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in all of Israel. So they are stunned, they are shocked, they're marveled, they're wowed. How do we know that they're marveled, they're stunned, they're shocked, and they're wowed? Because they have seen. What did they see, I asked. Well, they didn't see the casting out of the demon, so what did they see? They saw the man. They saw the man. They saw the man before, and they saw the man after. You follow me? They saw the man before, and they saw the man after he had an encounter with Christ. They knew before he encountered Christ, he was demon-possessed. He was more than likely could not hear and could not speak. He was bound by Satan. No telling what else he said and did or, or whatever during that time. They knew of his condition. They knew that he met Jesus. And after he met Jesus, they saw the after. He could speak. He could hear. He was a changed man. They recognize the divine power to transcend this man's demon possession and his muteness and transform his life. I ask you, we live in an unbelieving world that is looking for transformed lives. I wonder, do they see, do they know the difference that Christ has made in your life? Do they recognize the divine power and the activity of Christ who has set you free? 
I'm convinced that some of us as Christ followers, they don't see much of a difference between us and them. It's hard to distinguish the way we live and the way they live or, or who we are. I, I, I'm convinced that they must and they need to see Christ. They must understand that once we encountered Christ, we were this and now we are this. And they recognize by the lives that we live a transformed life by what they see, not just by what they hear. And I wonder that most of us are probably silent about our witness is because honestly we know that if we were to witness where we work or where we recreate, where we live, people who have not seen the difference that Christ has made in our lives would not accept our testimony. And the only way they're going to recognize the divine power of Christ is through you, through your testimony, not just from your lips, but from your life. The activity of Christ is discovered through a recognized life that has been impacted by the divine power of Jesus. I'm not saying you have to be perfect, but I'm saying you need to live a life that reflects a changed lifestyle so that they can recognize it's Jesus who's made the difference in your life. And then lastly, we see the activity of Christ. We discover the resistance to divine power. There's a resistance to divine power. Believe it or not, there are those who are not happy about this man's transformed life. Sounds like church. Sounds like church. The skeptical people who know of someone's life before and they seem make a decision for Christ, walks down the aisle, prays the prayer of faith, stands up and declares his intent and shows his testimony and they na 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 they resist and reject what God has done. Notice in the passage in verse 34, but the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. He, Jesus, cast out demons by the prince of Jesus. But the Pharisees, they, there's always those who have an exception who are, want to deny the power of Christ. You know, I remember when I was a, a child, and I grew up in church, in Baptist churches. Very rarely did I ever hear about the Holy Spirit. Very rarely did I ever hear about any power to transform someone's life. I mean, even as a student pastor for a number of years. For we as Baptists have often squelched the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because we've been afraid to be called charismatics. And yet the question is, who dwells in you? The Holy Spirit. We need to be really, really careful how we as Baptists treat the Holy Spirit. And I like to kind of refer myself sometimes as a Bapticostal. Not totally Pentecostal because... You know, Bapticostal is a Pentecostal that's got some theology. That's just a joke. Anyway, notice why they take an exception. They give an explanation. Hey, Jesus, <laughs> you did it by the power of Satan. You know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna have an exception, or if you're gonna resist or reject what God is doing, you better have a good explanation as to why you're rejecting it. Because you see, if you acknowledge that God is at work, 
and that God's the one that has done something, then you've got to, you put yourself in kind of a precarious situation. You have to either just outright reject it or you have to join it. And that puts you in a kind of a strange place, doesn't it? Because you don't really want to recognize God at work and acknowledge that because if you say God's at work and you don't do it, then there's, there's something that happens inside your soul that you know, huh, that's not right. So the way we do it is we then attack the activity of God by simply saying that's not really of God. And Jesus had something to say about that because, you see, he says in Matthew chapter 12 later on, this is a precursor of what happens. Let me just read you this text, Matthew 12, 22. Then the demon-oppressed man, this is another man who was oppressed by by demon, was blind and mute and was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, here they come, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he says to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? Or if I cast out demons, this is not meaning Jesus doesn't think that he is casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you think, if you think that I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons then cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if because the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man, binds the strong man? Then indeed we may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We need to be really, really careful, church. And when the activity of God is being active and he is moving and he is releasing his power and lives are being transcended and transformed, that we not call it any other work than other the work of God. Because Jesus is still releasing divine power today. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to you in our name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I, behold, he says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nonetheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. We still have the authority and the power of Christ today, and he still transcends our needs, and he still can transform lives, and we can be set free. There is nothing that can limit his power. There is no one that can hinder his power. For when we come to him and look to him and rely upon him, we can be transformed. Seven things I want you to look at, and we're going to do it very quickly. They're all going to come up on the screen pretty much at the same time, so you better write quickly. I need to realize that Christ is available. In order for me to be set free and for you to be set free and for us to be set free, we must Realize that Christ is available, that he's 
that he's accessible, that he wants us to come to him. He's accessible. He is available. And if we will come to him, he will receive us. Number two, we need to recognize our condition because if we don't recognize our true condition and that we need Jesus and that he can transcend our need and transform our lives, we will never come to him. What is honestly your condition? There are many people who deny their conviction. They cover up their condition. They, 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 they don't want to acknowledge their condition because then they're forced to deal with it. There needs to be a recognition of what our condition is and our need for a savior. Then we will reach out for the divine intervention that comes only through Christ. Once I recognize my condition, the only one and the only place I can go to is to him. And once I do that, I can receive complete and total freedom or liberation. He can set us free. He can set you free. He can set me free. He will release divine power. And we can be completely liberated and we can then reflect a a life that has been transformed by the power of Christ. He can rise up within us and live in us and live through us and we no longer have to be slaves to sin. We can live free. I've known believers that are enslaved to pornography and sexual addictions and alcoholism and drug addictions that he has set free. And if you're struggling today with any kind of anything, I'm here to tell you that Jesus can transform your life and he can set you free. And when he sets you free, make sure that you represent a true confession of what it means to be transformed by the power of Christ. Represent him. Don't dabble in sin. Fight it. Put up a good fight. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Represent a true confession so that others will see that it is Jesus who is making the difference in your life. And we must then finally resist that destructive opposition that will constantly haunt us as long as we live or until Christ returns. Some of that opposition is going to come from Satan himself. And I hate to say this, but some of it's going to come from the religious. The religious. Because sometimes I think it's the religious that are worse to deal with than the unbeliever. Have you been set free? Jesus said that the Son came to set us free, and if we put our faith and trust in him, we will be free indeed. Are you free? There's nothing that should prevent you and stand in your way from leaving this place free today. What we're offering is freedom in Christ. It's yours for the taking if you'll trust him today. Let's pray. Your faithfulness will always
same Sing it all my days I will sing, Lord, your praise endlessly And your name will be the song inside my heart Try that one more time. Good morning. Ah, we have a really great morning this morning as we start off our service. We're going to have three baptisms of three beautiful young ladies. And the first is Erin Cheatham today. And so it's our joy to celebrate her birth in Christ through this ordinance of the baptism. If you're here today and you're a part of her family, would you stand? If you're a part of the Cheatham family, would you stand at this time? Got several. Anybody else? All right. If you have had Aaron in life group, Sunday school, Awana, any other time, would you stand? Because you are also responsible for this wonderful time. All right. We thank you for your ministry to her and to her family. So Aaron, it's my joy to baptize you. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior and committed to him the leadership of your life? Yes. It's my joy to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Aubrey, and if you're part of Aubrey's family, would you please stand? Also, if you have been with Aubrey in life group or Sunday school or water or ministered to her in some way, would you also stand? Aubrey, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? Because of that decision this morning, it's my privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the of life. And this is Brooke, and if you are part of Brooke's family, would you please stand? They're related. Also, if you've been with Brooke and Life Group or Awana, would you also please stand? Brooke, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. 